0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Glad that you're here with us today. If we haven't met, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to talk about Luke's account of Palm Sunday found in Luke 19. So you can open your Bible there, follow along in the YouVersion app where you'll see everything that we're gonna talk about laid out for you there uh, this morning. One of the things that we talk a lot about here at Westway on Sunday mornings is is the context of the story. We talk about the background of the particular text that we're reading on that day. Um, Because each one of those background pieces, the context, the setting, and the time, and the characters, each one of those things, each one of those, each one of those aspects of the story help us understand what the story's really about. And many of us have heard the story of Palm Sunday uh, over the years, and that can be dangerous because we, can, we think we know what it's all about. Uh, Becky and I were talking about this uh, over the past week as we were kind of planning music for today, and she was talking about what she was going to do, and she really gave it a great phrase. She said, well, those are the glasses we wear right so when we when we read a story that that we that maybe we've heard before as we formed thoughts and opinions about those things we we put on glasses whenever we read them and we always view those stories through those lenses and palm sunday is just one of a few stories actually in all four of the gospels um, so this only adds to kind of our view and our perspective about what Palm Sunday is truly about. And we usually when we read Palm Sunday, when we're going to talk about Palm Sunday, we, we sort of do this with the story, right? We focus just in on the, on the triumphal entry of Jesus, And we don't pay attention to what's going on before, and we don't pay attention to what's going on after the story. And when we read each of the different gospel accounts, what we kind of learn is that some of the things that one author puts before the triumphal entry, another author doesn't put before the triumphal entry. And those kinds of things ought to force us to ask some questions like, why did Matthew include this and Luke didn't include that? Or why did John say this, but Mark doesn't mention that? Like, what's going on here? And this is why it's important for us to remember as we're, as we're reading the Gospels in particular, but any of, the, any of the books or letters in the Bible, we need to remember that they're written with a specific audience in mind. So the, the person or the people that Matthew is writing to are different than the people that Luke is writing to. And what that means is because they're writing it to a certain person, that's going to sort of inform the things they talk about. Does that make sense? So we're reading through this. So back in February when I, well I knew it was Palm Sunday. I've known it was Palm Sunday for a long time. But back in February, I sat down with each of the the gospel accounts. And sort of my, my initial practice when I'm getting ready for a sermon series is I'll go through and I'll, I'll handwrite the whole thing out. Sometimes I copy, other times I paraphrase, but I'm, I'm writing and I'm, I'm thinking and I'm processing through and I'm really paying attention to the context. And when I, what I read in Luke was really, was really fascinating uh, to me. And one of the questions that we kind of ask as we read through the different gospel accounts of Palm Sunday is why was Jesus going to Jerusalem? We got to ask that question. And my guess is because, because we all have a perspective in the way that we read the Bible, most of us would be coded to say, like the lenses that we're wearing would be, well, Jesus was going to Jerusalem for Passover. He was going to celebrate Passover. That's why he was going to celebrate. That's why he was going to Jerusalem. And what I would tell you is if that's your perspective, you're wrong. Um, and I'll tell you why in a couple minutes. But first, let me tell you what Passover is. Passover is the Jewish celebration from when they were delivered out of Egypt. There were a series of plagues where God was telling Pharaoh to let his people go. And the plagues got worse and worse and worse and worse. And they culminated where God said, if you do not let my people go, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill the firstborn of every household in Egypt. And then he, went to, then he went to the Jewish people through Moses and said, now here's what you guys need to do in order to avoid this. You need to slaughter a lamb or a goat and you need to put the blood on the top of your doorframe. And then when my, when my angel comes through Egypt and the angel sees that blood on the doorframe, he is going to pass over that house. So Passover is something that the Jewish people are going to celebrate to remember God's passing over of the angel of death over their house. It's an annual celebration and it was, it was the big one. The population of Jerusalem would swell to two, three, or four times its normal size. So there are a lot of people who are going to Jerusalem, who are in Jerusalem for the Passover. But why was Jesus going there? For this, we turn to what the Bible says. This is Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. This is what Mark says in Mark 10, 33 and 34. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the son of man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. This is Luke 18, 31 to 33. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem, where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He'll be handed over to the Romans, and he'll be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him, but on the third day, he will rise again. So why was, why was Jesus going to Jerusalem? An article I read earlier in the week said he wasn't going to celebrate Passover, he was going to be the Passover, was going to be our Passover sacrifice. He was going to be the Lamb. So Luke 19, the text that we're going to talk about, is divided into three different sections. And and as I've been reading and reflecting and talking with other people and, and praying about this, I think the first part of Luke 19 is absolutely critical for us to understand the rest of what's happening in Luke 19. So let's read verses 1 to 10 forever or together. Let's read it forever. We'll read it forever too. Today it'll just be together. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus. But he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road. For Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, we all know the song, right? How many of us know the song, the Zacchaeus song? Remember, he was a wee little man. He wasn't that small. When he came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your house today. So when when our kids were little, I think it was J3. Whenever he would sing the Zacchaeus song, he would always end it with, For I'm going to your house to play. For I'm going to your house to play. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. Meanwhile, Jesus Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, "I will give half my health, my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much." Jesus responded, "Salvation has come to this house today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost." So here's what we see in these, in these first 10 verses. We're, we're seeing transformation. We're seeing transformation in this person of Zacchaeus. And the way that Zacchaeus is going to respond to Jesus in these first 10 verses is, is going to be in contrast to the way that almost every other character for the rest of the chapter responds to Jesus. And this is why it's crucial for us to, to read the Bible to understand the context, because Zacchaeus is doing something here that no one else in the story is really going to do. In fact, Zacchaeus probably has the model response for Jesus. The wisdom and knowledge that he gains about Zacchaeus leads to transformation. He's a new person. So he has this, and it's only a meal. It's only a meal. But if you've ever had a meal with, something, with someone, you know that like, great things happen over meals together. You learn more about people. You spend time with them. You grow in your relationship with them. And this intimacy and, and this relationship that Zacchaeus has with Jesus in one meal leads to action. And what we're seeing in Zacchaeus is he is both worshiping and obeying Jesus. He's doing two things. He's worshiping Jesus. He's acknowledging him as his Lord. And then, verse 10, verse 11. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, so let's stop right there. So there's a couple things you ought to know about this road from, Jer- from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's 15 miles long. We kind of read through this story And we think, oh, Jericho to Jerusalem, that's like walking across the bridge to get into gearing from Scotts Bluff. No, this is is a 15-mile hike, and it's uphill the whole way. Jericho is 720 feet below sea level, and the peak point on the road to Jerusalem was the Mount of Olives at 2,600 feet. So over the course of this, of this 15 miles, there are 3,400 feet in elevation change, and this was probably an eight or nine mile hike. And because it was Passover week, there would have been, there would have been thousands of people on this road. So imagine Oregon Trail Days, imagine, imagine the big things that happen in Gearing and Scottsbluff that bring people into town. There are lots of people on this road. There's a lot of things going on. And these people, the, the text tells us, would have been familiar with Jesus' signs and wonders. So they weren't, they weren't ignorant of who he was. And those who were closest to him are going to be very familiar with the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And because of the things that Jesus told his disciples, they're, they're paying attention. And there's not a single thing that happens on this particular sunday that wasn't meant to happen so jesus is going to do something because he can he can feel the the anticipation he can feel the tension going on let's read let's continue to read Luke 19. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. So again, don't miss this. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what's on their mind. And what he's going to do is he's going to tap the brakes and he's going to tell them a story to reorient their brains around his, around his mission and his purpose. A nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. After he was crowned king, he returned and called in his servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You've been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. So you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You'll be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then turning to the others standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. But master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. Yes, the king replied, and to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. We need to remember that this this parable has a purpose. There's a point to Jesus telling this story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God was beginning that day. So who who are the characters, right? Jesus is the nobleman. He's being called away to be crowned king and he's going to return. The servants are his followers and they have been given a mission to fulfill while the master, the king, is away. To multiply what he's given them to be productive and purposeful. The people in the story are the unbelieving Jews. They don't, they don't want Jesus to be their king. And the king returns and it's, it's time to see how each servant was With what he had given them. They're going to each be judged on their usefulness. And that's something that we talked about in 1st and 2 Peter. See, as followers of Christ, we are, we've been given something. We've been given gifts for building up the body. We have a mission and a purpose. And this is how, this is how God's kingdom works. This is what Jesus is saying. This is how God's kingdom works it's being developed over time and you're either making him the king of your life and demonstrating it by your obedience and your worship or you're not making him king those are the those those are the two choices for the people as they as they heard this story and it's not just obedience it's praise I want you to notice that that this concept of praise is kind of missing from this story. What we see is this, are the people responding, two of them at least, respond in obedience, but there's very little praise. In fact, it's the opposite. What they're saying is, we will do what you say, but not because we love you, not because we're worshiping you, not because we're praising you. We're going to do what you say because we're afraid of you. Because we know that you are a hard man. Now also they're not describing God faithfully because God doesn't take what isn't his because everything is his. But what we're seeing is this is this picture of a people who are obedient but not praising. I want you to think back to Zacchaeus. He declared that Jesus was Lord. That's worship. That's praise. That's ascribing to Jesus something. And then he demonstrated it with obedience. See how those two things work together? It's praise and it's obedience. And Zacchaeus is the example for that. There's a reward for obedience and a cost of disobedience. Let's keep reading here. After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying the colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down to the Mount of Olives all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all of the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied if they kept quiet the stones along the road would burst into cheers. This is one of the things I love about this about these three like three seemingly very different scenes is the characters that we see. What did the people say about Jesus when he went to go see Zacchaeus? He has gone to be the house of a notorious sinner. What did the people say when the man left to be crowned king? We do not want him to be crowned king. What did the people say when the people received the money from the disobedient servant? But he already has 10 pounds. You see the complaining going on in here? And then when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and all of the praise and all of the worship happens, we see the Pharisees teacher Rebuke your followers for saying things like that. These stories are so connected. So again, remember the scene. There are people everywhere. Thousands of people everywhere. He hits the peak of Mount of Olives and then begins to descend into Jerusalem. And these aren't random things. Jesus is in complete control of this story. He knows all of the prophecies. He knows everything written about him. He knows Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. I'll read it for you. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph of people in Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding a donkey's colt. So Jesus knows this and he's coming into town and he's like, get me a donkey, I need a donkey. Like if we're, if we're going to be true to what scripture says, I need a donkey. So with two miles left to go, he rides down into town. And the people on the journey, not only, not only his disciples, but the other gospels, talk about all of the other people that are there on the story. Like they're on the, on the road, like they know what's going on. All of the pieces start to fall into place. This guy's riding on a donkey. He'd done all these miracles. We've heard all these stories about him. We think he's the Messiah. He's coming to do something. They had already been singing songs for the last 13 miles. See, there's a group of psalms, I think it's 120 to 134, that are called Songs of Ascent. And the songs of ascent are the songs that you sing as you're walking up the road to get into Jerusalem. So they're, they're, they're doing all the things that they are supposed to do. Everyone is playing the part. And then as Jesus comes down, they start to sing new songs. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. These are psalms, and these psalms include phrases like, I will not die. Instead, I will live to tell what the Lord has done. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not let me die. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, sun and moon. Can you imagine this moment? Can you imagine people singing songs about you? And will the lyrics include the sun and the moon worship you and praise you? This would have been a very powerful moment. It's a perfect combination of the songs they normally sang and this hope and this anticipation And expectation would have been a perfect moment of worship and praise. And the question that we naturally then ask is, okay, but did they mean it? Did Did they know what they were singing? Did they know who Jesus really was and what Jesus was really coming to do? And this was part of our discussion this past week on Wednesday night. We don't know their motives. We don't know their hearts and minds. But there's one thing we do know. The Pharisees are furious by this. They know what's happening. They know what is being ascribed about Jesus. They know what the words and the songs mean. They know the lyrics. And they tell Jesus to put a stop to it. In fact, they demand that he put a stop to everything that's happening, and Jesus refuses. One of the interesting things that that some people talk about when they think about Jesus like never claiming to be God or Jesus not receiving worship well right here. and he didn't tell him to stop. see if Jesus was if Jesus was was a good Jew, and people were worshiping as him as God, a good Jew is going to say, that's blasphemy. Don't do that. Don't worship me. That's what John the Baptist did, right? Don't worship me. I'm here for somebody else. But Jesus doesn't tell them to stop worshiping. Jesus receives the praise. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take him out. I want you to just close your eyes for a second. Close your eyes, and I want you—I want you to imagine this scene in your own head. Imagine the thousands of people. Imagine the Jesus on the donkey and the disciples. Wonder what you see. You see something like the Super Bowl parade? All—all all the players on top of the bus. Pointing at people, waving, smiling, excited, joyous. What do you see? You can open your eyes. I think we might think that Jesus was like this, right? Bring it. I'm here for it. I'm here for your worship. I'm here for your praise. Yes, tell me how great I am. Tell me how awesome I am. I want to hear it. Well, what does the Bible say? This is the last part we're going to talk about today. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. See, we don't know the things that motivated the crowd on that day. We don't know where their heart was. We don't know where their mind was. We don't know anything about them. All we can do is conjecture, is guess. But Jesus knew where their hearts were. See, Jesus knew. Jesus knew exactly what was on the hearts and the minds of those people saying these things to him on that day. And Jesus is weeping and he's sorrowful because he knows the hearts of mankind. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows what's happening in the minds of those who are walking with him. And, And surely some of them were sincere. Maybe many of them were sincere. Jesus is heartbroken here because he knows what's going to happen to people who do not want him to be their king. That's what's going on in this text. And if we think back to what we've read before, we saw the story where the the king calls in the disobedient one and he have them, um, we're going to take his money, bring in the people who didn't want me to to be their king. We're going to execute them in front of me. What's happening in this story is what happens when people reject the reality of who Jesus is when we do not want him to be our king. And the question that we all have to wrestle through is, as much as we don't know what's on their hearts and on their minds, we can ask what's on our hearts and our minds. We can reflect, we can evaluate what's happening inside of us when we hear these stories and we read about Jesus and we sing songs and we're doing all of these things. see, so we don't know what the motives of one another are, but each one of us knows our motives. Each one of us knows whether or not we are truly responding to Jesus out of praise and obedience, or maybe just praise because that's what everyone else in the crowd does. We gather together on Sunday mornings and we play music and a lot of times we invite people to participate. And it's easy, isn't it? To to go along when we don't really mean it, when we don't really feel it. And what Jesus is asking, what he's demanding of those who would be his followers is to submit to him as Lord in both praise and and obedience. Obedience and praise. It's not one or the other. And the question that we have to wrestle with today is, do we want Jesus to be our king? And all that comes along with that. All of the great things that come along with that and all of the challenges that come along with that. Do we want Jesus to be our king? Do we want Jesus to be our Lord? If you are not a Christian here today, like today's the day, can you just do it? I think there are people in this room who have been here for a while and you're not a Christian. And like, I don't know who you are. I have no one on my mind as I make that statement, but God does. And I'm just wondering, I'm curious, like, can you just do it? Can you just accept him? Will you just accept him? Will you just desire for him to be your Lord and your king? Because as we've read, like, there's a time coming where, where there's, where there's going to be an end, Where there's not going to be another opportunity, where you're not going to have the chance. And what we want to do is for you to accept Jesus as your Lord and your King, and we can just rejoice with you. We can be grateful with you. And if you are a Christian today, then what I would encourage you to do is to respond to Jesus in praise and obedience. Don't just praise and not be obedient. Don't just be a good legalistic, moralistic person who is obedient and follows all of the law rules without actually praising the reality of who Jesus is. Be both. Worship and be obedient. If you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say make Jesus your Lord and you want to do that, I, come and talk to me today after and we can have that conversation. But don't wait. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the way that you have constructed the Bible to teach us and to draw us closer to you. Lord, I lift up those who have yet to make you Lord of their lives. And I pray that they would, they would see what you offer them, that they would see salvation, they would see hope and comfort and peace. And they would give themselves over to you. For my bro- Christian brothers and sisters who who maybe partially submit and partially praise, God help them to see that that you know what's going on in their hearts and their minds. For my Christian brothers and sisters who love to praise but don't love to be obedient, I pray, God, that you would work on them, that you would convict them of truth. And for my brothers and sisters who are obedient but don't praise, I ask the same thing, that you would make us yours and that we would say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray.